to uh, really set the stage and set a foundation uh, for a new section that will begin in verse 12 of chapter 5 and will go through uh, the end of, of chapter 8. And uh, so we're going to focus on these 11 verses this morning and hopefully we'll establish a good foundation for what Paul wants to say more fully, what he will reveal more fully for us in uh, chapter 5, verse 12 and through the end of, of chapter 8. Uh, what you see in these verses uh, in particular uh, in today's text is that it's a text about celebrating, that God is a God who celebrates reconciliation, especially the reconciliation of families. You don't have to go any further than Luke's gospel chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son to see that reconciliation in families when the prodigal son comes home, that these things are celebrated. There's a great feast, a great party that is had because of this, this son that has returned. Even when you go to the Old Testament, uh, we see the highlight of this, especially when we come to the end of the Old Testament, the very end of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi, prophet Malachi is the last voice that God is going to speak through before what is historically known as the 400 years of silence, that after Malachi, we have no other voice until, until John the Baptist emerges on the scene. And it's interesting to me, and it shouldn't be understated, that in the very last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet inspired by God to speak to God's people of all the things that could be addressed, God inspired Malachi in the very last chapter to address family, the reconciliation of families. And the very last word that we have from the voice of God's prophet, the end of the Old Testament is a word of reconciliation between family members, fathers and children. That the hearts of the fathers in chapter four and verse six, the very last verse, that uh, the heart of the fathers will be restored and drawn to the, drawn to the children and the hearts of the children will, will return to their fathers. That's the vision, that's the anticipation. In fact, in scripture, there is no alternative. The only alternative we could say to, to the reconciliation of families is a cursed land, a cursed nation. Because in Scripture, we see that in the family, this is the unit that's been established by God. We see the perpetuation of a legacy of faith in families. Families are, are the cornerstone of nations. And so when there are fractures and fissures that exist in families where reconciliation is not sought, nations crumble with the disintegration of the family. I will share with you that in 33 years as a pastor, 40 years total in gospel ministry, I've never met a single individual, if you want to be the first one, you can catch me at the back door after church, but in 40 years of gospel ministry in the local church, I've never had a single individual say to me, Pastor, I regret that I reconciled with my father. Pastor, I regret that I made reconciliation with my mother before she died. I regret it, Pastor, that I made reconciliation with my brothers and my sisters. I've never had a single individual regret the initiative of reconciling, being reconciled to someone. 
But I have sat with countless individuals after funerals who regretted not taking the proactive initiative in being reconciled to a family member. Do you know of greater tragedy is the number of people that refuse to be reconciled to God. When God has done everything that he could possibly, possibly do so that you and I, as a fallen people, could be reconciled to him. And this is really what Paul is going to accentuate in verses 1 through 11, if not the entirety of, of chapters 5 through 8. It is a celebration of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul is really holding forth, as you'll see in these verses, and these 11 verses are really the catalyst, the foundation of, he's going to expound further upon these in the remainder of those chapters all the way through chapter eight. But in these foundational, in these foundational verses, verses one to 11 of chapter five in, in Romans, Paul is holding forth this Christocentric gospel of what God has done, what God has accomplished through, and that's a redundant word as we'll see it again and again and again in these verses, really throughout the entire uh, section of chapters five through eight. This word through, what God has done through Jesus Christ, Jesus being the focal point. The interesting thing is to me that in the first four chapters of Romans, Christ has only been mentioned twice. And yet here in these verses, he's going to be mentioned, be mentioned some 24 times in, in chapters 5 through 8. Five times in, in these first 11 verses, the emphasis is on what God has done, what God has accomplished. This work of justification, what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to look at these more fully, but just a cursory glance of these 11 verses, we see that, that, that through Christ, that you and I as believers, because of, of the death of Christ, let's just start looking through these verses. We as believers, we have been transformed by what God has done through Christ Jesus as believers. We have been transformed, he says, from those who were, who were helpless in verse 6 who were sinners in, in verse 8, who were also ungodly in verse 6. We were transformed from those who were, who were described in verse 10 as being enemies of God, worthy of divine wrath, Paul writes in verse 9. And so we've been transformed from all of that, Paul says, because of what God has done through the death of, of Jesus Christ. We, we have now been transformed into those who are now justified. That is, we're made right with God, verses 1 through 9. Reconciled to God, verse 10. At peace with God, it says in, in verse 1. Standing in grace, as Paul describes it in in verse 2. Saved from God's wrath, verse 9. Sharing in the hope of God's glory. Verse 2, these are all the things that God has accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ that is to our benefit. So it's little wonder that three times in these 11 verses, Paul says, we celebrate. We celebrate as believers. Well, what are the specifics of that? What is it that we celebrate? Well, 
Notice in verses 1 and 2, Paul says that, that we celebrate in hope. Verse 1, therefore, and again, I always say you need to get up on the edge of your seat whenever you hear Paul write, therefore. Good, sound, biblical interpretation. You're always looking for key words. You're looking for words, connecting words that tie things together, link things together. Uh, a word like through that we see over and over. And now this key word of transition, a favorite transitional word of Paul, the word therefore. He's saying therefore, uh, that is based upon the work of justification, which is what he's been talking about all the way from chapter 3, verse 21 especially verses 21 through 26. Then in chapter four saying how Abraham was justified, made right with God because he believed. But now, now then he says, as we're coming out of, out of chapter four and what he has said in verse 25, he who was delivered over, speaking of Christ, he who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification, therefore, Paul says, on the basis of that, on the basis of the work of being justified, that is being made right with God, we, again, there's a word that Paul has not used often, but now he will, from this point on, 16 times in, in this chapter, he's going to talk about we, not Jew, not Gentile, we as believers, we as followers of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Paul's made that very clear in the first four chapters. That's what he's been establishing, that God is not partial. Now, Paul says the idea of a Jew has been redefined. It's, it's not who holds the law. It's not who has been circumcised in the flesh. Now then, it's based upon the circumcision of the heart. Now then, those that are a part of the covenant people of God are those who have believed in what God has done, what God has established in the person, and what God has accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we, he says, all of us who believe, we have peace with God through our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's peace with God that has been established. We need to understand that this peace with God of which Paul, of whom, of which Paul writes, it, it, it's, it's not a peace of mind. That's not what he's, what he's speaking to. That by virtue of what God has done through Jesus Christ, now then you can, have, you can have peace of mind. Now there is a sense, and Isaiah will say this in Isaiah 32 and verse 17, there is a sense in which, in which after we have been redeemed, after we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we, we become Christ's followers. I, uh, my conscience is relieved of the guilt and the shame that plagued me previously because, uh, because of having done what I knew I should not have done. And there is that sense of which my conscience has, uh, my conscience has been relieved of that, that burden of shame and guilt. But Paul's not talking about peace of mind when he's talking about peace with God. You would have to go to Paul's other writings. Paul, especially in 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul catalogs and lists through that book a litany of negative emotions that he's that he experiences in his life, in his faith journey, 
even though he is certainly a man at peace with God. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, he talks about feelings of, of being crushed. Chapter 4, verse 8, he, Paul says, I, I feel perplexed. Chapter 7 and, and verse 5, Paul confesses to having, to having great fears within. Chapter 11, verse 28, anxiety that he's, he's having anxiety over, over the churches, his concern for the churches. And even while he's sitting in a Roman prison writing to the church at Philippi, he says, I have sorrow upon sorrow. Chapter 2 and verse 27. So if Paul's not talking about peace of mind when he's speaking of the peace, having peace with God, what's he speaking to? Well, as, as we can probably glean from what we have studied already, he means we are no longer under the wrath of God. We are no longer standing under the wrath of God. We are no longer, because of what God has done through Christ Jesus, it means that you and I, because of our belief and our trust in him, we are no longer alienated from God. We are no longer the enemies of God. We no, no, we no longer have an aversion, an aversion or, or even hostility towards the things of God. To be right with God and to be at peace with God means that we are in good standing with God, no longer enemies, no longer the recipients of what will be the recipients of, of his wrath. Verse 2, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate, he says, we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. I, you, I love the temple language that, that Paul is referring here that he's calling up and conjuring up from his own background and experience. And he now, in talking about this thing, that this gospel, this something new, this fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, he borrows from that temple language of access to God to describe for us what we have now obtained through Christ Jesus. It has to do with access and the presence of God. This word grace is really kind of a, it's really kind of a, it's kind of a shorthand word for, for the presence and the power of God for which you and I now have access. That very thought and idea is the same basis utilized by the author of, of Hebrews, when the, uh, when the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 4 and in verse 16, let, a, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. We've known God's grace. We've known his power, his presence. He desires access for us. That has been accomplished through Christ Jesus. Now then, you approach that throne of grace with confidence. Not shame, not guilt. Not the fear of being struck down for coming into the holy of holies. That veil's been pulled back. The cross itself is now uh, the mercy seat. Giving us access to God. 
And the beautiful thing is, is that because we know this grace, his mercy, because we have been transformed by this, given a, given a new nature, becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus, he says, now then what you and I are fully capable of is celebrating and participating in this hope of the glory of God. Your corrupted state, which, which stole away the glory that, that, that you gave up in your, in your sin for the wages of sin, is death by virtue of our of our sin we 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 lost the we were no longer image bearers but now that you have known the presence and the power of God through his grace he's saying once again you can reflect the glory that he fully intended for you to show and to reveal and make known to the world We are the image bearers of God, created and fashioned and in his image and all of that which was corrupted and stolen away by sin. Now that it's been restored, that's our role. We are image bearers of Christ. So much more, listen church, it's so much more this idea of salvation. It is so much bigger than this little self-absorbed concern of being, of being saved so I can miss hell and I can make it to heaven. There is so much more in the created order that is being accomplished by, by God, and a role in which you and I play no small part. Because we get to show forth the glory of God. Now there's a strange thing here As this passage continues on, we're not surprised, are we, that we have celebrated our hope, that Paul talks about celebrating our hope. But this next section, I think it catches us off guard a bit. Because Paul now says what what we celebrate, because of what God has done through Christ Jesus in his death and his resurrection and confirmed in his resurrection, is you and I now celebrate tribulation. We now celebrate our tribulations, our trials in life. Now listen, church, we live in a day and time, whenever I hear someone lamenting about, I just don't understand why, why we as Christians are expecting this, this suffering, all that tells me, you know where my mind goes immediately when someone laments their suffering and their trials in life? My first thought is this person has no understanding, this person has not been studying their Bible. What they've embraced is a cultural religion that thinks that because they confess Christ with their mouth, that they ought to have no obstacles in life, that somehow this is their get out of jail free card, that somehow they, they, they should be exempt from the hardships and the trials of life because I named it and claimed it. All that tells me is that you, you have never read your Bible. Because if you have rightly read and studied the word of God, then you have full understanding that suffering is, our vo- is part of our vocation as Christians. Suffering is part of our existence. It is part of our vocation as believers. But notice how Paul frames this. And not only this, that is not just celebrating in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also celebrate our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, now before I read farther, see see the understanding of Paul. Paul sees a progressive development here. 
that as you and I endure our trials, as we endure our tribulation, and listen, for Paul, when he writes about tribulations in life, Paul's not thinking about some, some far-off period out in the future. Paul, for tri- when Paul talks about tribulation, he's talking about right now, this present life. The hardships, the sufferings we endure as, as believers and, and followers of Christ. We celebrate in our tribulations. Notice the, the progression here that, that Paul is seeing. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, he says. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul sees a progressive development here. As you and I endure and persevere the trials and the tribulations of of life, it develops the character that God would desire for us. As he is in his providential purpose, what the world would intend for evil, God is able to take that as a part of his process of fashioning us for a people in the life in the world that that is to come, eternal life. Peter speaks of it in 1 Peter in chapter 1. Peter speaks of this in verses 6 and 7 as as a refiner's fire. The refiner's fire burns away those things that that hinder us, that hold us back in our development as, as a people of God. And so to be sure, to have peace with God never means we have peace with the world. That the world is our enemy. The world is the enemy of God. Now, I'm not saying go out and make enemies with with our mission field. But our world has no regard for the things of God, and we should not be surprised. In fact, when Paul talks about trials and tribulations, Paul is not speaking in gen- in, uh, Paul is not addressing generalities, the things that happen to everybody in life. You know, you wanted this to happen, this didn't happen. That's not a trial to Paul. That happens to everybody. Parent dies, that happens to everybody. That's, that's not trials and tribulations. That's not the kind that Paul is speaking. I'm not diminishing those things, those hardships that happen to all of us. But Paul is speaking not generally, he's speaking specifically to those things that, that are imposed upon us, that, that are wrought out upon us because of our faith, because of our desire, because of our confes- confession to live openly and publicly and obediently to the Lordship of Christ in our lives and the teachings of his word. Paul says that's the kind of world we're we're living in. Paul's body bore the scars of suffering and, and hardship and trials in life. And the only reason this idea of celebrating our suffering and our and our persecution, if we ever experience that in any form, the only reason that makes any kind of sense at all, this idea of celebrating in our, in our tribulations, the only way it makes sense is because of the resurrection of Christ. Because in him we see the attitude. We see the attitude that, that is necessary even in, in the life of, of Jesus in chapter 12, verse 2, who for... Uh, who for for the glory before him, for the joy set before him, 
He's looking ahead. Jesus, who, the, who for the joy before him, endured the cross. And he's saying, when you endure, when you persevere, when you don't crack under pressure, this is going to have a very real effect as we saw for Abraham in, in chapter 4. Where we, when we continue persevering and pressing on in, in hope, we are piling up hope upon hope upon hope I keep going and I find that God is faithful that God is true that God is trustworthy I'm piling up hope for hope upon hope never anticipating that this world can offer me any kind of security and sense of of well-being which is what every human desires I think we have to examine ourselves in the light of these words, I think each one of us have to be honest in assessing where we are in our faith journey. Are you progressing, growing more and more in this image bearing of Christ Jesus? Progressing in maturity, coming to, to new places of soul trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you digressing away from that, wanting more and more of the security and the safety and the structures that, uh, that this world has, has been seeking to offer us? COVID, the pandemic was telling, I think, for a great many people. I think many well-intentioned people in confessing Christians during the pandemic I think, I think they were shaken because their faith or lack thereof was exposed. That though they confess faith and uh, that Christ and my faith is foundational to who I am, it really wasn't foundational to their existence. And I think for a great many, it exposed a lack of faith that, that I've, in fact, all my life had a misplaced kind of faith, that I had faith in systems and structures that before the pandemic gave me a sense of well-being and security and and I dared to call it faith. And then those structures crumbled in the pandemic. And they found out they really didn't have a foundation, foundational faith. That what they had and what they possessed looked a great deal like the world. A world that despairs. A world that is scared, frightened, fearful. There's been a great exposure of emotional adolescence in the after effects of the pandemic. Anger, hostility, emotive expressions, lashing out because there is this realization that the world can never offer you the security and the well-being that you so desperately want but that only Christ can give. We are a people of destiny. But we are in an interim time. And in this interim time, there's going to be insecurities. There's going to be frailties. And, and in these broken earthen vessels with, 
with our commitment to persevering and enduring and going forward. You see, for Paul in verse 5, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's Paul's first mention of the Holy Spirit. It'll become more predominant as the book goes on. But this is his first mission, first mention of the Holy Spirit, that transcendent presence in our life that indwells us and empowers us and recalls to our memory the promises of God regarding the future so that we can keep going in the present, so that we can keep piling up hope upon hope. And we do it sometimes, but we all fail, don't we? But even in our brokenness, as we continue to plod forward in perseverance, the cracks within this, listen, we can't beat ourselves up for our failures because even through the cracks of this earthen vessel as we press on the light that seeps out of those cracks and failures and shortcomings. Even these, are the, even these lights from these broken vessels, it's the light of the gospel. It's the light of grace. It's the light of God's presence and power dwelling in us. And you and I as a covenant people, as a people who do not put their confidence in the flesh, who do not put their confidence in the systems and the structures of men, you and I have been placed in a unique position within humanity to lift people up, to raise them up. But listen, we cannot lift them up. We cannot give them hope. We cannot show them more when we live down here with the same fears and anxieties as everybody else. They have to see in us a hope for something that is yet to come. But a hope that is so real, piling hope upon hope that keeps me going forward every day into the future of what God has in store for me. And for us as a people of God. And so we celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that even as the love of God is being poured out, he uses these things to fashion us into the kind of people that we should be as a unique covenant people in a world that is scared, despairing, without hope. Then a final thing Paul says of us as believers, we celebrate in God. For while we were still helpless, for while we were still Helpless. Listen, not when we had arrived, not when we got our act together. Hear people sometimes say, well, I need to get my act together before I give my life to the Lord. That's not how you come. You're doing it then on your own merit. You're trying to do it on, on the basis of what you bring to the table. He says, listen, for while we were still helpless, and this, again, this goes back to verse 5. This, re- this is a reflection of God's love being poured out. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, remember Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son into the world. Providential timing, providential purposes and intent for while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly listen what God does isn't based upon the human calendar nor is it based upon human merit when God deems the time as being right he has acted for those who were helpless who were ungodly for us for one will hardly die for a righteous person 
Though perhaps, and it's almost like Paul lost his train of thought here and his mind's kind of venturing off. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, sinners, helpless, ungodly, Christ died for us. You see how incarnational this is. Listen, maybe we need to clarify a bit. This, this is something that has always disturbed me, pastoring in the Western church and hearing how people talk about their faith in a way that is unbiblical. I, I think for the prevailing number of Christians, confessing Christians in the Western church, there is this idea that the God of the Old Testament is some kind of old ogre. He's just this old angry guy, just wanting to wreak havoc on everybody, just waiting on you to mess up so he can make your life miserable. And so God wanted to do something about his image, so he throws Jesus into the picture. And, you know, Jesus is the soft, nice guy. And so we have these offsetting personalities here where Jesus, the mean old ogre, and then we have Jesus, the loving, nice guy. Nothing could be further from the truth. This entire salvation history, and I, was going to, I was going to go back to Abraham, the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant to deal with the sin issue that arose in chapter 3 of Genesis so that we might get back to what life was supposed to be in Genesis 1. But I have to, in truth, go back to, to the creation act itself. All of this is the outpouring of God's love. What God has done through Christ Jesus is foundational. It is rooted in the love of God. It is the love of God that is the progenitor of everything that Christ did. Don't ever doubt the love of God. These are incarnational verses. This is the enfleshment of God. What God has demonstrated is that God has seen our plight, God has seen us, God has seen our situation, and God realizes that only he can solve the problem. And in an incarnational way, in an enfleshment way, this is the love of God embodied in flesh, dying for us. This comes from the love of God. Who said, I have to do this. No one else can do this. I have to do it. It would be like you drowning. I see you drowning. And I say, hey, hey, hold on just a minute. I'm going to go find somebody that can help you, and I'm going to send them your way. I would never do that. So if any of us would never do such as that, what makes us think that God would do that? God has seen us drowning in sin. And he knew he had to do something about it. Much more than verse 9, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
This missing out on the wrath of God, that's not something we have to wait on till the end. This life that by which we are being saved is something that has present tense reality in the lives that we are living now. Interesting, Paul on the one hand talks about salvation in terms of just being justified, justification. On the other hand, he talks about being reconciled. On this hand, he's using judicial terms, justification. You can envision the defendant before the judge and, and the judge acquits the defendant. But that judge in any secular law court, that judge after acquitting the defendant, He's not then going to say, you know what? I'd like to have supper with you this evening. Because that's what God, the righteous judge, has done. He's expanded our understanding. That's where reconciliation comes in. Reconciliation is a term of kinship, a term of relationship. Listen, I don't want to just acquit you. I want to have a relationship with you. And that's our confidence church, what God has done, what God has started, going all the way back to the act of creation, what God has labored to do and accomplish now through Christ Jesus. He's not going to let that work go unfinished in you. We are works in progress, and God is going to work and labor to see this great salvation that he has accomplished and that he is accomplishing, that this work will be finished in you. Though we fail, though we are unworthy, (laughs) helpless, sinners, enemies, because of his love, as a loving father, he longs for nothing more than to be reconciled to you. Ed McManus told the story of being in Puerto Rico and hearing a priest tell the story of, give an account of a woman that was dying of, of AIDS. This priest had gone to comfort her, to be a comforting presence to her, and she was in deep lament. I've ruined my life. I'm a terrible person. I've ruined the life of everyone around me. Now I deserve to die painfully in hell. In the midst of her lamenting and The priest trying to offer to her comfort, he noticed a picture frame up on the dresser of a pretty young girl, and he asked the woman, who is the child in the picture? Her countenance changed immediately. She said, that's my my daughter. That's the one beautiful thing that I've ever contributed to this world. The priest asked her, let Let me ask you a question. If your daughter messed up, if your daughter sinned, if your daughter disappointed you, would you still love her? Would you still want to have a relationship with her? And the woman, almost in defiance, said, yes, of course. Why would you ask a question like that? He said, because I want you to understand that God has your picture on his dresser. (laughs) 
And all he wants to do is to love you, to receive you, and to have a relationship with you. That's what we celebrate. A God who desires to be reconciled to his people. Even you. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we fail to grasp the magnitude of the love of God. Of the love you have for us acted out in flesh through the person of Jesus Christ. A longing for relationship that is so deep and so profound that it would sacrifice his only son. And Father, I pray that this would be the voice this morning, regardless our station in life, regardless of our rebellion, regardless of all shortcomings and sins. I pray, Lord, that it might be your love that beckons us to come to your throne of grace with confidence so that we might know your mercy and your help in our hour of need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.